Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Durhaj. Hi, everyone. It's uh, Roxanne Durhaj of the Authentic Election uh, Movement today with uh, Sajel and her lovely husband, Vincent. Lovely. Thank you. So uh, <laughs> that's a, it's a compliment. So yeah. I, I met you. I met Sajel, obviously, lots of times, not met uh, um, Vincent before, but I... Uh, Oftentimes on the podcast, I, I really love to speak to people about things that are actually happening out there in the real world in different work environments of which, uh, in this case, Sajel works a lot with um, first responders and that's her specialty around her coaching and her, speak, her speaking and Vincent's actually a firefighter. So I thought what a great opportunity to be able to chat about it's one thing to have the concepts of the books and things like that, but when you have real live examples, I think those are the most fantastic. So thanks again I, for coming on and, and helping me out, guys. Anytime, Roxanne. Okay, so we're going to just uh, jump right into things and talk a little bit about uh, PTS, PTSI, complex PTSD, all the terms that you hear. And I always say, you, you know, people think of it as trauma. Right, and I often say there could be a small T trauma all the way up to big T trauma, which is some potentially some of the things that Vince would would uh, deal with all the time. So, tell me, Vince, from your perspective, what kind of things would you see over your sixteen years of of being a firefighter that I mean you might still recall today? Um, well, over the course of my career, I've seen a lot. Uh, it depends on where you're located, what hall you're at, and things that you respond to. Um, I've seen everything from suicides to children passing to people being burned alive, uh, people shot, um, injuries at work, um, tar accidents on the 401. Uh, you name it, it's a, it's a gambit. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of different things, right? So uh, every hall sees something different. Every person experiences something different. So Now, Sajel, when, when Vince started it, obviously, I'm going to assume it was something that you always wanted to do, Vince. Was this something that you always kind of dreamed about doing as a little boy? Yeah, exactly. Little boy, uh, childhood dream, and uh, worked hard at it and doing it. So Awesome, <laughs> awesome. Ones, yeah, for sure. So, Sajel, when, when you kind of recall way back, you know, at the beginning, do you remember seeing kind of any, I mean, I would think at first it's the excitement of the field. Oh, for sure. I mean, I got to marry my fantasy, right? Like, we yeah. always, we joke about it. Um, you know, girls looking at the guys in the uniform and everything else. And, you know, I remember when Vince was training and, uh, you know, practicing his protocols and I was like pretending to be the the dummy and he'd just come close and I could feel my heart skip, you know, well, things medical, like that. Medical scenarios. Yeah. <laughs> quite, like, liter quite literally, plus you're, plus you're uh, helping him with this. Bring on the CPR, baby. Right? <laughs> <laughs> 
So, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun at the beginning. Um, and now looking back, you know, especially over the last three years, since we've been navigating PTSD in full, full effect, uh, looking back, like over the decade, there were so many things that we could have picked up on, should have picked up, picked up on and being a, a psychotherapist myself. Um, it's like the, being the shoemaker with no shoes. That's what I felt like, you know, uh, that why didn't I pick it up sooner? Why didn't I notice it sooner? And we were chalking up a lot of it to just normal marital issues or high, you know, family stress and just thinking that we had normalized a lot mm -hmm. of what, if you look back now, was much more severe than what we were recognizing it to be. So Vince, when did you know it was more than just, I mean, every, every long-term marriage, is, there's differences, you have to communicate, you constantly have to make time to kind of resolve things. When did you know it was a little bit more than that? Yeah, like when that, that in, in fact, some of the symptoms you're experiencing were actually related to some of the traumatic things you were seeing, and it in fact was starting to impact or maybe corrode at the, at the relationships at home. Um. Well, as a firefighter uh, doing this job, we don't bring, uh, or we try not to bring what we see at, at home. So we internalize everything. Uh, so what happens, uh, you know, we go call after call. Sometimes you don't have time to process. Um, so we just kind of pack it away and move forward. Um, with me, I uh, had the one call about two and a half years ago. And I, I came home and I was just very quiet. I, I you know, I felt kind of weird. But I couldn't explain it. Um, I knew something was up, but I didn't know what it was. And so, you know, I, moving forward in the next shift, I was filling it at another station and I just didn't feel right. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know quite what it was. So I called a friend of mine and he was on the EAP team. And I said, look, I said, something's up with me. I don't know what it is. I feel kind of weird. Um, I don't know what's going on. He's like, well, what's, what's, you know, tell me, tell me about it. Why are you feeling this way? Did you? see a bad call i said yeah i was at that call with the extrication and he was like oh wow because i heard that was pretty bad i said yeah it was he says well how are you feeling i said well i just i don't know yet like i, I know i'm different i know i feel weird but um i'll let you know i said just just want to give you a heads up to let you know like something's up but i can't really put my finger on it so then i let a uh, couple of days pass and then when i returned back to work the next shift i was again filling in again and the feeling wasn't going away in fact it was getting worse and I, I was just not myself, and I, I just knew something was up. So I gave him a call again. I said, look, um, the feelings I have are, you know, not changing. I'm having visions of having, you know, nightmares, and things are going on with me, and it's, uh, it's not good. And he says, well, he says, I think you, you need some help. And then he goes, because, you know, something obviously is um, tipped the scales for you. I said, yeah. So then that's basically how it started for me. And then I came home and I was quiet for a while. And then Sage will tell you the rest of what's gone on. I just basically immersed myself to things I was doing outside and not dealing with my family at all. So Sage, when did you start to realize this was not kind of the garden variety kind of impact? This, this one particular call, uh, you know, sounds like it was pretty horrific for you to you know, have stored so, so much memory, um, you know, obviously the cumulative impact. So what did you realize with him? He said he was 
uh, quiet. Was there other things? He was. That, yeah. He, yeah. So when he came home from the, the actual call, uh, you know, he was quiet. And again, I said that we normalize, right? So I knew that when he comes home and if he's quiet, just let him be. He does his thing for about 24 to 48 hours and he comes around when he comes around. That was sort of the routine that we had uh, made for ourselves. I knew to stay out of his way because if I did uh, interact too much with him after a bad call, unknowingly, I was public enemy number one. And so over time, I just had resigned myself to, if he's quiet, let him be. So what, what happened was he was quiet for the first 24 to 48 hours, which I said we stayed, I stayed away. And then... Uh, I found he was having like really angry outbursts and I found that the children and I were walking on eggshells a lot and uh, sort of very uncertain. And it was like, not even like get mad at something that was reasonable. It was getting mad at like the smallest of things and going from a zero to a hundred and it was instant. Um, so we became sort of very hesitant to even interact it had gone on for about a few weeks and, you know, I had, we had in between, we had sort of those conversations with each other where I'd say, you know, I understand you're upset, but you know, I think the extreme of the reaction maybe wasn't called for and he would find himself, uh, I would find him uh, beating himself up over it and being feeling very guilty and, you know, and trying to not make him feel worse you know, we would have conversations and be very accepting. And um, it went on for a few weeks till it was like becoming more and more frequent. Quality of life wasn't there. Um, and eventually f knowing that I had to make a decision between my children's well-being because this wasn't a healthy environment for anyone. Um, and he wasn't talking to me. So uh, literally with one foot out the door, I said to him, you need to tell me what's going on or I have to make some decisions here for everyone's benefit because this is not okay. And how did you respond when she said that? What did you do? Did you went, go, oh God, I can't talk about it or I, I, I got to do something? I, um, <laughs> I was just in a state where... Uh... I didn't know what to do. You know what I mean? I was like feeling helpless. I, I, the guilt was phenomenal. It was un unbelievable. Uh, a lot of pressure, uh, you know, and I knew here I was, my life's in a balance where, you know, I'm gonna lose my family. And I knew uh, there was definitely something wrong and I needed help. I just didn't know what to do. You know, mm -hmm. and I, I just kind of broke down and just kind of, you know, I didn't, uh, I don't know, you were there, Sage. Well, I, I don't know what I can say. It's just, it was uh, a definite turning point for sure for me. You know, I think this was after, was it three in the morning, four in the morning, right? Yeah, like I was, I literally, we had a blowout just, you know, a few hours before and I left the house. Mm -hmm. I got in the car and I drove and I ended up uh, in the local park beside my house. And I was like, I know I can't, here I'm at a stage where, I'm having nightmares. I can't stop them. I'm having constant flashes, like I'm talking to you and I'd have flashes that would just come at me. Um, every odor, every, every thought, every memory, every mm -hmm. single call that I've had that, you know, was horrible was coming at me and I couldn't shut it off. And to a point where I was looking at, I was staring at a pole 
hydro pole and it was like a, a light pole with a cement base and i was like okay now what so i backed the car up. i backed my car up as far as it can go and i shifted in park and i was just ready to floor it mm-hmm. i was like you know what i have to stop it somehow and i'm obviously not good for my family maybe it's best if i'm just not around how powerful right the pain that uh overtakes when you can't neutralize the, the nervous system and you know, yeah. you, um, I know you guys would know about the vagorasal nerve and if it's overstimulated, which obviously it was with you, yeah. and, and you couldn't get out of that hyper-aroused state. Yeah. And now, now the body and the brain is trying to kind of get you back to that homeostatic balance. But obviously there was additional things that were needed for that to happen. Yeah, and as well, not only the, there was only a visual thing and a memory thing, but my ears, I was getting tones in my ears and now I now have tinnitus because of this. And I'm hearing different frequencies and, and it's like, um, that's the way I can describe it is like, you're, uh, looking at a high definition TV constantly and you're, mm-hmm. uh, you have your stereo cranked on high all the time. Mm-hmm. You constantly, your peripheral vision's constantly moving back and forth. And you see people coming, coming and going. It's like, you're constantly on guard on, it was crazy. Right. And it was just anything would set me off and it can rage. Mm-hmm. Like not even uh, reasonable, like, you know, something fall on the floor, I go off, fly off the handle. And that's not me, but I just, I didn't know what to do. It so was Tom, yeah, yeah. So definitely the, the body and the brain was saying, help me, help me. Something has to give here so that you could get some kind of um, relief from all, all the things that were coming at you. It's like, I often, the analogy I, I often say to people, it's like, you know, going the wrong way on the 401. Um, yeah. You, you, there's so much coming at you, you're not sure exactly where, where to go. Right. So, so Sejal, for, for partners that are listening, um, what, for wives or um, even kids that are living with a parent that might potentially be struggling with some issues related to post-traumatic stress, what, what kind of advice or guidance would you give them? Something I share with uh, a lot of the clients and family systems that I work with is that the most important thing is to have open dialogue and to really create a safe environment, not just for the person who's going through it, but all of you. Because when you create a system of safety, it's much more uh, nurturing for the individual who's going through it firsthand but it's also making it safe for everybody else to open up because we're all going through things at the same time. I mean, I was a, um, a wife living without her husband. I, you know, my children didn't have their dad the way they would normally have him. So everyone's kind of going through their own thing. So I think it's really important that the more everyone understands what each other is going through, then we can create that environment where everyone can be healing um, at the same time and actually growing closer. So taking this time of crisis and turning it into a platform for launching a new version of yourselves as a unit and as individuals. So you can actually grow from the experience. And Vincent, I don't know uh, if you want to speak to this, but for us, I mean, we're better than we were before. We're better as a couple, we're better as parents, we're better as a family, and we're better as individuals. I really feel that we've actually used this experience to really cultivate the environment that we had always hoped to have. 
So it really gave us an opportunity. So through the adversity, uh, because you had to get the appropriate help, it actually heightened your capacity to be able to connect on a deeper level um, because you had to work through some of the things that maybe the average person doesn't really have to deal with, right? Like, you know, couples, they, you know, they have to stay connected. They got to talk about more than just running their lives. They have to chit chat about things that potentially develop. But we're talking about that, that extra free flow of, of situations that are less than, right? And that's coming into the relationships all the time. It is. And what we really found was the gaps. The, the system currently is set up to help the individual that's going through it, you know, be, be it that they get support through therapy and such. But what we found were a lot of gaps. And that's what we now dedicate our time and our efforts towards is helping other couples and other families and other first responders actually navigate the whole experience. And because and, our mission was that nobody should go through it alone the way we did. Right. Uh, and one of the gaps was that there wasn't a lot of family support. There was no spousal support. There was nothing for our children. So those are the opportunities that we're now creating um, to get people talking and so that they're not going through these things alone. I want to chat a little bit about the gaps in service because I think that's important. Uh, Vincent, you talked a little bit about the field pro kind of promotes, whether it's implicitly or explicitly, not to talk about it. So we expect guys or women coming in to basically do it. They, they go, they do the calls, and someone may say, hey, it's kind of difficult, but you kind of blip on it, over it, and you move on. Um, and you know, generally, there's, there's e internal EAP arms, which for people listening that don't know what that is, it means that you know, it's a peer-led team that's trained that would be able to respond, to be able to educate within 48 hours, or sometimes they do what we could, they call a debriefing, which is in 72 hours, which helps people to reprocess, which is great for the guys that are on deck. What we haven't talked a bit about is kind of, okay, that's great. The guys are getting what they need, but what about the, the husbands, the wives, the kids, parents, and the people around, the, all the systems that are outside of the fire hall. So I want to talk more about that. And tell me about some of the things you're working on to, to kind of address those gaps. So what things have you been doing differently? Um, well, I'm viewed probably as uh, the guy's worst nightmare, right? Because uh, none of them want to go through this, right? And a lot of the times they know it exists, this, you know, what can happen to people, but they just choose not to deal. And it's a, it's a suck it up Nancy mentality, you know, like you have a tough call, you deal with what you have to deal with, you move it on, you move on and you keep going, right? Nobody wants to talk about it because it's kind of a taboo thing. Um, it's also a generational thing where you have different um, kind of age groups in the fire hall where, you know, you have the uh, older mentality where it's like, this was never spoken about, so we don't want to talk about it. Then you have the intermediate stage where they're kind of, they know something about it and they know it exists, but you still kind of really talk about it because the people that are your senior don't really want to hear about it. Uh, the people that are junior are just too junior to realize or to understand. And then you have the newbies that come in and, and they're like, they're all kind of ready to go and they want to get in there and do their thing. Um, I think 
as a whole, uh, we have to understand that, yeah, this does exist and it's not, there's no shame. I mean, everybody has their story, right? You talk to uh, every different firefighter or, or emergency service worker, they have their stories, they have their calls and what may not necessarily affect me may affect them. So as a, as a whole, we all have to say, you know what? Yes, this does exist. Yes, we have people that are in trouble and we have to open up our hearts and say, look guys, or girls, whatever, we have to do something about this. So the more we're open-minded to things, the more we educate ourselves, the better it be for the whole. For sure, people should step forward and they should talk about it. And they should be uh, making it their best effort to do what they can do to make themselves better and to make themselves better for themselves and their families. And they don't have to keep it in the hall. They can open up to their families, bring their spouses into the conversation, bring their spouses into the halls, you know, when the opportunity is there so that there's familiarity and crossover. Because what we forget is that we're one organism and we're one organism moving from one environment to the other. It's not that you're leaving all your stress and pressures behind. Mm -hmm. So the more sort of continuity we have in terms of support and care, the more likely you are to be more resilient and to recover faster if you happen to find yourself in crisis. You know what I think, and I, maybe this exists, I, I'm just thinking uh, off the top of my head here, if there was a debriefing and there was the possibility to be able to do a concurrent one with the partners of the firefighter, and I'm, I'm sure I'm completely going against what, whatever protocol would be, just think how amazing that would be, right? Because generally they know if someone's gonna suffer within 72 hours right? Because generally they can reprocess, they can kind of deal with it, they can get rid of what they need to. But if there's a cumulative effect, the, the, those individuals generally potentially might be going off on leave. But if there was something like that, that could be adapted even as a pilot, and maybe it's done, I don't know, uh, or has been done, just think of how powerful that would be. Well, I haven't heard of anything as such like that. But what comes to mind, uh, Vincent, and you can kind of tap into this is, um, the, the protocol that if a firefighter is injured, we get notified either by the firefighter, if he's unable to speak for himself or herself, then we're informed by, uh, I believe it's the captain, right, Vincent? Captain or chief. Or captain or chief. And if something's really, really wrong, they will actually come, to, the chief's truck comes to pick, pick you up or to notify you at home. I wonder if through the peer support, if there isn't some opportunity that if they feel after a certain call that this person's at risk, if there isn't a way then to, like you said, Roxanne, have a conversation, including the family or spouse to say, look, there's been um, a real heavy exposure here. We just want to make sure that you're all on the same page and know what to look for. Know that we're here if you or anyone in the family needs the support. Um, and then let's check back in, let's say 48 hours and, and did mm. some sort of, you know, sort of amped up the protocol to include psychological trauma. Right. Because, because if we look at what, uh, uh, Vince was saying earlier, the firefighters predisposition or a state is to kind of keep it in. But if there was some way through, um, you know, that sharing through all keeping in confidentiality and all those things in mind, mm -hmm. I just think what, what a service that would be, right? Because maybe the mm -hmm. person's still struggling to share or even process what they're going through. They're trying to go home like you did, Vince, and, and, and make mm -hmm. sense of stuff that it doesn't make sense for any of us, 
Right. And, and, you know, so that extra helping hand along the way. So it may be something uh, with you uh, specializing where you are. Maybe it's something that, uh, you know, might be a good thing to potentially look at even piloting and see. If well, it- that's what we do through Mind Armors. We create these micro programs um, and we don't have a cookie cutter approach. We do it with department to department. We, okay. we help them to create the protocols and uh, programs or interventions that are going to serve their community the best depending on the size and nature of each each department so that's that's what we do from the mind armor aspect so tell yeah tell me a little bit more about that and tell everybody listening because i'm sure there's people thinking if i'm a spouse you know and i need to talk to somebody um if i'm a couple Hmm. And I need to be able to, even if it's an informational call, you know, and I, maybe I don't need therapy or whatever, but I need to kind of get a sense that this has been happening. What is it, what should I as a spouse, you know, need to develop skills wise or whatever, or a psychoed kind of session? Um, what are some of the things that you do? So sort of in response to, again, what we've kind of learned along the way is um, we built or what inspired mind armor was that we saw the gaps that the departments were, were having in terms of, you know, how to integrate this into the culture, because there's a whole culture piece. There's then the sort of educational and training piece. There's the, how do you actually live it then within the organization organizational system? So actually my whole doctorate and dissertation is how do we integrate this and create systems in which first responders can live and thrive and building their resistance along the way. So the whole idea of hire to retire comes into play. So that's the mind armor piece. And we offer like the training and the, the speaking at events and things like that. Vince and I both do that individually as well as team. So we've both gone on and, and actually done talks together. So we resonate with a, a larger audience, including the families, spouses, and also providing both perspectives, because if you don't get both perspectives, how do we start to make change, right? So we do that from the mind armor side. And what we found was a lot of people, including chiefs and leaders, were like, you guys get this. This is what you guys need to be doing. Uh, And then some people were coming forward saying, I'd love to see you. And so we actually opened up SOS psychotherapy to actually be able to help people then one-on-one as couples and as uh, in groups as well. So we're serving both sides of the sector because like I said, we identified where the gaps are and we're here to help fill in the gaps so that it's more seamless and people can really focus on healing and growing and getting better. So that's the idea is to provide as much support as we can. And we certainly work within a network as well, that if it's something we can't provide or don't provide, we certainly know people that probably do. So it's just about people reaching out, starting to have these courageous conversations that we can start to make the culture shift. And to remember, I I just did a talk on um, what's your cause for pause, which addresses a really important piece, which is thoughts of suicide don't kill. It's the isolation and stigma from the shame that does. So go ahead, Vince. No, I said it's a lot of guilt, right? A lot of guilt. Um, Just from my own personal experience, guilt was so bad. Uh, It was only this January where I actually said, okay, I have to forgive myself for, you know, what I put my family through. But otherwise it was like, 
just that's just another factor that weighs on you because you know you're hurting the people that you love the most right you're not thinking of yourself at this point because yourself you're thinking well you're trying to figure out what's going on with you it's but it's the people that you're screaming and yelling at and fighting over and fighting with and causing them grief and they're saying how come dad's this way and how come my husband's this way or my wife's this way whatever you know so yeah after you know figuring that out and um forgiving yourself or at least trying or making the best effort to do so then you can move forward that's what's kind of let's talk a little bit about kids because i know I've, I've taken a lot of your time but what kind of guidance do you give to families out there about how to talk to kids about if um based on what parents are coming home with what's i know this is a, de- a developmental question but you know what kind of support do you offer for kids or do you in your, or do you refer that on? It, it totally depends on the circumstance and the, as you said, the developmental stage of the children. Uh, but if your children are at the age and stage where you can connect with them and have really open, honest conversation and welcome the questions and, and curiosities that they might have, um, we really, really do recommend that. Uh, so for instance, for our children, we can give you an example is we created language in our family. So we use scaling questions. So we know where each other is at and, you know, let's say daddy wakes up at an eight, then we know to give daddy some space, you know, if that's what he needs, or if he needs to go out and, and ground himself, then that's okay. It's done without question, without guilt or any sort of, um, ramification. It's, he's welcomed back at any time. Uh, welcoming their questions and also really to create the understanding that as parents, we're human too. And kids get that, you know, they really do. They're really quite resilient. I think uh, our children are probably two of the most beautiful, compassionate human beings that we know. And it's because, you know, they haven't had just a sort of, um, uh, straight line in terms of their childhood. They've had the ups and downs and, and they've learned how to navigate them so much so that they're so compassionate now out in the, uh, in the world with other people because they recognize that we're all human and that we do stumble and we can get up. And what would it look like if we helped each other up? Mm-hmm. As well, we're, we're very honest with them too. You know, it's, um, they asked a lot of times, you know, Daddy, what's wrong? What's going on? You know, what's happening with you? And I, I didn't just tell him. I said, look, you know, uh, this is what I'm experiencing. He says, you know, it's nothing personal. It has nothing to do with you, you know, your sister mm-hmm. or your mom. This is something that's happened to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm working through this because I'm going to want to be the best person that I can be for them, not only for myself. So a lot of times I'm going to have conversations with them. It's, it's as raw as it can be and honest. And there's no shame and there's no um worry in my mind how they're thinking of me because i just want to tell them what it is and gives them a better understanding of what i've gone through and why i am the way i am and you know how people are just human it can happen to anybody so you know sorry sage if they experience this with anybody they'll have a better understanding as to how to deal with them as well and Roxanne, just to give the audience some sort of context, our children are now 10 and 11. And when we, we actually started this whole process and journey, they would have been uh, seven and eight, if not slightly younger. Mm-hmm. So you can understand the level of 
um, resiliency and understanding that even our young people can have. And sometimes I think we don't give them enough credit to have open conversation with them. Now, that doesn't mean that we gave them all the guts and gore of it. Mm -hmm. We obviously... Uh, you know, put it within context and use vocabulary and um, storytelling that was appropriate, but whatever it was to give them that understanding so that they also have words to, to, to their own feelings. Because my daughter opened up to us and we're so thankful that she did because again, you know, going back to thoughts of suicide, don't kill. She was thinking that she wanted to, to end her pain and we hadn't even, and she knew how to put words to it now. And we didn't even know about it until she came and talked to us. Mm-hmm. So just the importance of, again, creating a, a, an environment where people feel psychologically safe to open up and talk. Sorry. What's important as well is they've, learn that they can be my rock mm-hmm. right not like the, you know like i've i've always taken on that role throughout my whole life you know being the rock being the person you know that has to be stable all the time the whole thing but they've saved me time and time again same with sagel right mm-hmm. i mean that night if i didn't have them i probably wouldn't be here you know mm-hmm. uh wow. it's just it's overwhelming it's something that you just can't shut it off so thinking mm-hmm. back now and i came back to them you know, I tell them all the time, I said, you saved daddy's life. Mm-hmm. I said, what better thing can you ever think in your mind that you saved? You know, you often talk about dad being, you know, the hero or the person saving people, but you're the, you're the heroes because you got, mm-hmm. you saved my life. All of you guys did. So transparency is key, right? I mean, obviously we know that with connection, but even more so when you're dealing with things like this and especially with children, when people think they're protecting them, you know, with your little guys, uh, you know, they were experiencing it in their body. They were, they knew something was wrong. And obviously you were putting, giving them permission to recognize daddy's not well, mom, mom and dad are trying to figure it out. We don't have the answers, but we're going to at least let you know that what we're feeling, which what a, what a powerful gift that you gave them. Well, and it also, come on, everyone, everyone's a little self-centered, aren't we? We always think it's about us. And they were, they could have been interpreting this as all their fault or something they were doing. And we took that away from them and let them know that it wasn't personal, that it was something external to our family, Mm -hmm. that we were okay. It was really reinforcing and creating safety for them because otherwise they thought that we were falling apart. There's something wrong with us, something that they were doing. And instead we really told them the truth, which was, no, we're all still good people you know, we're all just working through something and it's from the outside and we're going to be just fine. We just need to keep talking. Well, guys, this has been amazing. I would let you know that this is tape number two. We've done this once before. And I think the second time is even better. Oh, okay. So <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> uh, so what, um, what I'd like to, you know, just tell everybody where they can get a hold of both of you. Um, and I'm sure people are thinking they have questions Um, that they might want to reach out. They might want to find out about SOS. They might want to find out about psychotherapy or just in their uh, different environments, how you might be able to strategize with them to make it healthier. Sure. The best way to reach us is at info, I-N-F-O at Sajel Bellin, S-A-J-E-L-B-E-L-L-O-N.com. You can send any inquiries there. Uh, certainly, if it's an emergency or something that you'd like to get hold of us directly, you can reach us at 416-454-5064. Uh, 
and our websites and everything are under construction and on the in way. Progress. So in progress, <laughs> um, yeah. but we're, we're, we've, we've already started, um, helping and we've had boots on the ground and raring to go. So re we're ready for any inquiries if anyone has any, needs any help. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot again, everyone. Uh, so Thank you. what I'm learning is, and of course I've, you know, been in this field for a long time is, you know, when you don't uh, honor feeling it's as traumatic as the actual event that's occurring. So recognize that something as simple as asking a question, if you know, someone's been through something that you're actually healing a little part of them and by just being connected and conscious about people's lives. So if you're needing any more information on me, I'm a mental health and wellness specialist, and I can be reached at roxanderhodge.com. Okay, guys, take care. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.